We are continuing in our Impact World series in the book of Acts, and as we do that, we have uh, come to a crucial place, a, a big turning point in this, in this book. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. As we look at this story, the core reality that we want to grab from this is that seeing the reality of Christ radically alters the direction of my life. Just as we saw in Paul's life, Saul here, Paul later, it's true for all of us. Seeing the reality of Christ radically alters the direction of my life. Well, there are some things that we can see in Paul's life here that are pretty universal principles. We see them throughout the rest of the New Testament. And in particular, we see Paul's writings reflect these things, reflect what Jesus did in his life and what he wants to do in ours. First off, notice, I encounter the reality of Christ when he interrupts my life. I encounter the reality of Christ when he interrupts my life. What does that mean? It means that Jesus came to Saul when Saul was not looking for Jesus. Saul didn't come to him. He didn't seek him out. Say, boy, you know, my life's not right. i got to repent. I, I know that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior, so I'm going to turn to him. Jesus came to Saul to make Saul see this. This is true for us. Christ sought me. I did not seek Christ. Romans chapter 9 is a, a development of that. As Paul, writing to the Roman church, declares that not only is God gracious, but God is the initiator of all of this. It's through Him that these things come about. I encounter the reality of Christ when He interrupts my life. I am not going to come to Christ until He knocks me out of my regular track. When I continue to do my thing, not seeing that there's a need, something has to bump me off of that. Every conversion experience has that in common. But let's not be confused in thinking that Saul's details are going to be like ours. Sometimes we get caught up in the idea that there should be some big rush, some flash of light, so to speak, in our lives. And if I don't have that, if I don't have this overwhelming, you know, peace, if I don't have this overwhelming, uh, shocking interruption that is so dramatic, like Paul, like Paul has here, then I'm not really saved. And yet we see, just in last week's text, in chapter 8, Simon saw all the dramatic things in the wonders that Philip performed, but the Ethiopian eunuch was bumped off of his course by Christ, apart from any dramatic thing. For whatever reason, through whatever means, God intervened in his life. He had all the authority that he needed. There's no record of him being troubled. But he looked in the scriptures, 
did not see Christ, wasn't looking for Christ, looking for truth of some kind. He already worshipped God. And God sent Philip alongside that chariot to explain to him the nature of the suffering Messiah who would die in our place. And as God sought that Ethiopian official, everything changed in his mind. His whole direction changed and he, he gave up his identity in being baptized. That was the purpose of baptism. I'm no longer who I was. I am now Christ's. I belong to Jesus. I belong to his church. I'm part of his family, his body. I identify with his death and resurrection. And while I'm fairly sure that Philip didn't explain all of the details of that to him, it was clear that that's what the baptism was. Not dramatic, no blinding light, just God seeking him by the Holy Spirit bringing this evangelist to give him the word and opening his eyes to see the scriptures. Now Saul has a dramatically different experience. And it's powerful and tragic at the same time. He is shocked and upended, struck blind, has this horrific adversity that brings him down so that he can look up. You and I may have different details in our experience of conversion. But in every case, our life is interrupted by Christ. That's how we get to encounter Him. We're not prone to it. Romans 8 tells us that the sinful mind, the, the mind of sinful man, is not prone to repentance. It's actually hostile to God. It doesn't repent. It's not even capable of repenting. So it requires Jesus choosing to interrupt our life. I encounter the reality of Christ when He interrupts my life. Secondly, the light of Christ changes how I see everything. The light of Christ changes how I see everything. The echoes of this, uh, this encounter that Saul has here ring through all of Paul's writings. All of his letters are so dripping with grace, so overwhelmed by the supremacy and authority and sovereignty of God, overwhelmed by his own sinfulness before this God, that he can't ever move far from that. Whatever else he's talking about, he is less than six degrees of separation away from the grace of God interrupting. It always comes back to that. If you look at the beginning of Galatians, you look at the, uh, the introduction to Ephesians, we see God interacting. We, we look at Philippians and Colossians and what he writes in the pastoral letters, everything that Paul is dealing with is shaded by, it's colored by the grace of God that broke into his life, knocked him down, struck him blind so that he could look up and have the scales fall off not only his eyes, but his very heart so he could receive truth. In The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Saul will never again, regardless of what name he goes by, 
regardless of what church he's talking to, regardless of how many missionary journeys he goes on, or how caught up he gets in his own excellence, his own power, uh, uh, the magnetic personality, the ability to speak and to think, he casts all of that aside and goes out of his way to lower himself. He says, I, I came to preach the foolishness of the cross. We didn't come with clever words. He can never again see the world any other way. Turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you're still in Acts, you're just going to go uh, right past the book of Romans to the right, past 1 Corinthians to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You'll see in this our memory verse for the day. I'm going to start with verse 11. As, Saul, as Paul now writes to the Corinthian church, he says, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now that's the foundation for what he's about to say. He's been changed. Verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. I can't see things that way ever again. The light that blinded me now lets me see, and I can only see by that light. I can't look at that person who makes me so angry through my human flesh anymore. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is bigger. I've been changed because I deserve death. And he gave me life. How can I not see others this way? So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Our memory verse for today, we've chosen to do this from the ESV. Flows a little better for memory. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul continues, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He interrupts our lives and he gives us this new light and life. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The light of Christ changes how I see everything. Every part of my life changed by seeing the light of Christ 
and having that thing, whatever it is, illuminated by that light. Third, a life surrendered to Christ embraces the church as his body. A life surrendered to Christ embraces the church as his body. In Acts chapter 8, we saw the, the Samaritan disciples in the city where Philip had been preaching, receive the message, believe it, be baptized. And according to what we have read elsewhere in the, in the New Testament, uh, what Paul specifically says, to be in Christ, to have Christ, means we have the Spirit of Christ in us. We've been sealed. And yet they hadn't received the manifest gifts of the Holy Spirit as they had in Acts chapter 2 and elsewhere. Peter and John then come to bring these Samaritan disciples into the church. They had already been baptized and joined the church, but there's an act of apostolic blessing that takes place, an ordination of sorts, an approval, a benediction, as they lay their hands on these disciples and they receive the Holy Spirit. The same thing happens here in Acts chapter 9, as Ananias, who is in Damascus, receives the message from God to go, place your hands on Saul, that he might receive the Holy Spirit and have his sight restored. And he does. And it is. There's a connection here in the placing of his hands on Saul and what God does. It represents the benediction, the approval of the body of Christ, the church. It is a powerful thing to be a part of Christ's body. Notice after this happens, Paul spends several days with the disciples. Why would it say that? Why would it even bother? Of course, he's there. He's going to stay with somebody. There's significance in the fact that he is surrounded by, intimately involved with the other believers. He goes from this place to Jerusalem to be with the disciples, with the believers, among the body. At first rejected, eventually received, encouraged by Barnabas, because that's what believers do. We encourage one another. We stand up for those who may be outsiders. And as Saul comes, there is now this commitment to the body. Can there be any doubt that that governed the rest of his life? All of his letters are written to the church. He speaks so regularly of this connectedness of the church. He says, as he lays out the, the concept of the body in 1 Corinthians 12, that we're all connected, we're all members of this body. No one is expendable. No one is dispensable. We are interdependent. And there is a certain submission that goes along with that. The same Paul, having been a prominent leader, having been a persecutor of the church with authority from the high priest, humbles himself under the authority of what appears to be just a layperson in the church. We don't, we're not told that Ananias is a particularly 
authoritative leader or anything like that. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. That's not really the point, or God would have told us specifically. But Saul surrenders himself, submits himself to the authority of the body, of the church. He would go on later in his letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 5, verse 21, to call all Christians to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is a a mutual submission in the body. A life surrendered to Christ embraces the church as his body. I encounter the reality of Christ when he interrupts my life. Christ sought me. I didn't seek him. The light of Christ changes how I see everything. It's now the lens, the illumination of everything that I see. A life surrendered to Christ embraces the church as his body. As we love Christ, we love his body, the church. As we surrender to Christ, we submit to his body, the church. Fourth, seeing the reality of Christ radically redefines my plans and desires. Seeing the reality of Christ radically redefines my plans and desires. We see this picture in Saul. His plan was to go to purge the world, to purge Israel of this Christian cult. His plan was to wipe it out. His plans were dramatically redefined. For the rest of his life, this man who was on a career track toward joining the Sanhedrin, This is a guy who is on the rise, on the climb. He's daily grinding to get where he's got to go. His purity and devotion and passion and piety are well known among the Jews. And all of a sudden that doesn't matter to him anymore. It's the same Saul that says, yeah, that's all true of me. But everything that I once thought was to my gain, consider that rubbish. Literally, I consider that dung compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Seeing the reality of Christ radically redefines my plans and desires. If we have encountered Him, if we have seen the reality of Christ, then my desires, what I want for my life, is of small consequence. And what Christ wants for my life is of every consequence. It is the only thing that matters. Saul devotes himself for the rest of his life even to the point of martyrdom by beheading in Rome. Everything he does, whether free or imprisoned, whether in in want or in plenty, everything he does is for the cause of Christ, recognizing that Jesus alone holds his life. Seeing the reality of Christ radically redefines my plans and desires. If I'm going to be His, I need to give up my claim to all the stuff I want. And I find that in giving up those lesser things that I want so desperately in my flesh, He gives me unimaginably more than what I could ever have asked for. Last, notice the light of Christ reveals suffering as God's tool in my life. The light of Christ 
reveals suffering as God's tool in my life. We talked about this two weeks ago in God's surprising, suffer, uh, surprising sovereignty in suffering. Saul, immediately after encountering Christ, because of the humility that comes from seeing a holy God, realizing I'm not a holy person, and, and accepting the grace offered to me in Christ, this humility means that I don't care anymore about my suffering. So when they persecute him in Damascus, it doesn't matter. God's got a plan. I trust that he is working out everything for his greater purpose, that he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, wait a minute. I didn't get this. I, I prayed and God didn't answer. Then you, if you're worried about that, you did not let Christ interrupt your plans and desires. You see, God is doing what is most loving, what is most wise, because he can see everything. We cannot. He is able to do all things, and He gave us His Son while we, while we were still sinners. How can we doubt that our desires are paltry and small and weak and meaningless compared to what He desires for us? He goes to Jerusalem and He suffers. It just doesn't matter. When He goes through these prison letters that He writes, He's writing Scripture while chained to a guard. And he says, listen, guys, my chains, that's, all that's doing is furthering the gospel. I've got a captive audience now. So much so that when he encounters Agrippa and Festus, he actually appeals to Caesar, and Agrippa says, you know, we could have let this guy go if he hadn't done that. Saul, Paul, was more concerned with getting the platform of being able to preach the gospel for the glory of God than he was for his own freedom, his own comfort, his own personal temporal well-being. The light of Christ reveals suffering as God's tool in my life. Let's wrap this up. As we see demonstrated in Paul's life, as we see the call over and over again in the New Testament. And I, I would encourage you, I don't have time to take you to all these places, but I would encourage you to look at the um, Scripture references in your program. If you're watching online, they're, they're posted on the Facebook page for you. Take a look at these things. This is just a small sample. But recognize that seeing the reality of Christ radically alters the direction of my life changes me. It changes how I think, how I see, how I feel. It doesn't mean I'm not going to be sad or I'm not going to wrestle with feelings that creep in and, and appeal to my lesser, lesser motives. I can't stay there because I know too much. I've seen Jesus. When I've seen Jesus, nothing ever looks the same again. Seeing the reality of Christ radically alters the direction of my life. When I encounter Jesus Christ personally and see Him for who He is, I'm knocked off my feet and blinded by His glory and His holiness. I can no longer see God, myself, or life the same way. It's more than thinking religious thoughts or 
acting in some religious way, saying all the right things and looking good to all the right people. It is a radical alteration of the entire direction and trajectory of my life. I haven't arrived at my destination. I'm not living this life perfectly. I haven't obtained it. But everything about where I'm headed and what matters to me has been completely reborn by seeing and embracing the reality of who Jesus is. May Christ profoundly interrupt your life and plans today in such a way that you are shattered until He opens your eyes to the fullness of His amazing grace and you live a life completely surrendered to Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, You have, you have come sought us. Lord, if we even have a desire to repent, it's only because you drew us to yourself. Oh Lord, save us from the casual cultural Christianity that is a broad road leading to destruction. Teach us not to chase after some version of religion painted with Jesus' themes. Help us, Lord, to see personally, to encounter personally the risen, ascended, living Christ and to be completely, utterly redirected. We pray this in His name the one who is the light. Amen.